Hey there, Probably Scientists. Before we get to this week's episode with Dr. Chiara Mangarelli, just a quick reminder about where this episode fits in with last week's episode. We backlogged about three or four episodes a month or so ago, and this was one of those. And then after that, the LIGO findings on gravitational waves came out, which is the reason we had the special episode last week. So we recorded this before that, and at that time we didn't know that this announcement was coming. Uh, our guest, Dr. Chiara Mangarelli, possibly knew that, but didn't reveal that because she's good at her job. So that's the reason some of the questions might tread on the same ground as what we already covered last week, and that's the reason that Matt and I are in the dark about so much. So that's probably more preamble than you need. You can figure this out on your own. So enjoy this episode that is also about gravitational waves. Probably science. Welcome to Probably Science. My name's Andy Wood. I'm joined by Matt Kirshen, of course. Hey, Andy. With four in a row. Four, four in, a row. in two days. Four podcasts in two days. If you're following the saga, we are now indoors uh, still. It's warmer. The heating's fixed. It's only an hour after the last one, but the heating guy came and uh, everything's, everything's good. He did his job. It worked. Finally. It's very exciting. This stupid house. I told you what happened earlier today, didn't I, with my roommate? Uh... Oh, when you thought it was the heating guy, but it was actually a process server. Yeah, I've never, I've never had someone serve me with uh, like a subpoena or you know a thing. My roommate's being sued, and uh, I, I inadvertently picked up the paperwork for it. See, I didn't realize because th- I'm pretty sure that it's, it's only an American thing, and it's something that I only know from TV and movies of the person serving you court papers having to kind of trick you into accepting it. Yeah, I, I thought that, that I thought it had to be placed in the hands of the person who it is and that's the premise of so many dumb yeah. movies but well, excuse me governor got some flowers for you <laughs> with some legal papers we'll see you on the 25th not the case at all they can just hand your roommate something and trust that it'll get to you so yeah it's a sad it's a sad place here it's a weird sad house wow. i don't blame it's gonna be interesting yeah 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 <laughs> I think Jesse's already said on his podcast that when he comes back to town, he's not going to live here anymore. Yeah. So I, I wonder if the, po- if, the, if the podcast itself would survive a, a move from this house. I think we can manage. I think we can cope. Hey, that voice you just heard. So it's a physicist episode. We had uh, about a couple of months ago, our favorite physicist, Jan Eleven, was back in town. One of our favorite physicists. One of our favorite physicists. Yeah. You can't play favorites with I'm physicists. We all know each other, so that's dangerous. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like the best physicist by far, like easily the no, Jan, <laughs> Jan Eleven, who I'm sure listens to the show, know, and she's great. And she was in town, and she was at a she invited us to this party, and that's where we met this guest, who is not only also a fantastic physicist, but just co-authored a paper with Jana, uh, Dr. Chiara uh, Mingarelli. That's did right. I get that right? Did yes, you did. You did. I spent a while practicing. <laughs> And also joining us as well, her husband and fantastic mu- musician, Dan McLeod. Yes, that is me. Thank you. This is a very multinational show today. Absolutely. England, Scotland, Canada, Italy, whatever Andy half is. Italy, I'm half Italian. Oh, do you actually speak Italian? Yeah. Yeah, I did my bachelor's uh, degree in Canada, but my master's uh, was in Bologna in Italy. Nice. Give us some Italian science. <laughs> Tell, tell me do, uh, do, do science at us in Italian That's Yeah, yeah. How about, yeah. Go on, do some of your science Let's hear Newton's third law in Italian No, something more interesting Maybe black hole related Like the event horizon would be L'orizzonte degli eventi 
So let's say it's the point of no return. You know, uh, l'orizzonte degli eventi, il punto di non ritorno per un buco nero. That's amazing. That does sound better. <laughs> Way hey, more scientific. When you're doing science in Italian, though, are the technical terms still mostly in English, or is mm, some of them? Some of them are in English, but uh, I mean, it has its own vocabulary, which is what makes it significantly different from you know dinner time conversation with your grandparents Italian uh, to like communicating science in Italian so oh yeah was there a sudden learning curve where you had to kind of get back up to speed huge <laughs> absolutely absolutely I had to learn you know all of the words for like black holes event horizon particles you know sources of things and like all of the you know interaction probabilities field theory all of these things in Italian that's really interesting because Part of the deal with science in general is that words have very specific and very careful meanings. Yes. Which is a problem that scientists run into with non-scientists when they start throwing around words like quantum and energy and power, but in a more general sense, Mm -hmm. and then claim that they're doing science with it. (laughs) You know, we're all mass, man. So just, you know, and, and Einstein said that E equals MC squared. So we're all energy as well. So... If you put out a good energy into the world, they're like, no, that's not what Einstein yeah. said. That's not how. <laughs> or like, evolution's just a theory. It's like, that's not what the word means in that yeah, context. Yeah, so is gravity. Not... Feel free to throw right. yourself out a window and test it. Yeah, right? yeah. Actually, that one is the one that I doubt. But <laughs> it'll be a cold day in hell before I believe that gravity law. Um, yeah, so you've got to presumably be very careful about what those words mean then if you're relaying them in a different language. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it was a bit of a learning curve. So um, the master's program there is two years and I spent the first year like auditing classes and mm-hmm. trying to build up the vocabulary and also drinking lots of wine. Of course, uh, in class. <laughs> not yeah. in class, but uh, oh, it was, it was great. Um, and I also had difficulty registering because Italian bureaucracy is really notoriously right. bad. Um, and so, you know, like my Canadian uh, undergraduate bachelor's degree was shipped back and forth from Bologna to Ottawa, where I'm from, maybe at least five times. Like a right? physical piece the of paper. A physical paper, piece yeah. of paper, like to the embassy so that someone else can make another authorized, notarized photocopy with a different stamp. Right. <laughs> like it was it was pretty intense. Uh, with with Italian physics as well, are there things like does light take a more relaxed meandering path <laughs> you mean, like, does, does italy have like a deeper potential well like do things kind of go into an italian black hole maybe yeah right just, maybe is the answer because i feel like most of the time whenever i had to deal with bureaucracy i would be in a line and i'm sure that someone would take a coffee break call their mom have right. a chat you yeah. know, like they don't care. So that's got to affect your calculations then. accordion for like half an hour or something. Yeah. Or is it a concertina? What's the stereotypical Italian instrument in a restaurant? Or a violin. Sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's... Sit yeah. and have coffee. Like I like a culture where it's acceptable for any man over about 55 to spend most of the time drinking coffee and talking to friends. Yeah. I mean, that is that is a nice part of it where, you know, taking a coffee break is really nice and fun and like the espresso is one euro and you know if you want to get like a a croissant or like another little pastry like those are usually also a euro maybe like 150 
and it's really cheap and so a lot of people have breakfast out because you know the Italian breakfast is like a croissant an espresso or a latte like it's it's super cheap yeah, yeah. and delicious so I'm sold what was your master's in and then what was your PhD in? So my master's was in astrophysics and cosmology with a specialization in gravitation. Uh-huh. And my PhD um, was in uh, gravitational wave astrophysics with pulsar timing arrays. Which then leads us to the paper that you just so the Jana. So actually, the paper that I wrote with Jana was uh, not related to pulsar timing arrays. So okay. it was my first time writing a paper... Um, about a black hole neutron star merger. And so the interesting way that this came about was that Jana was visiting Caltech and science worked in the way that it should always work, which is a miracle. So I went to her talk and uh-huh. she was talking about, you know, this particular kind of black hole neutron star system where um, if the neutron star goes around the black hole really fast and has a strong uh, magnetic field that it will emit uh, different light particles, right? So uh, at different energies. So she um, and her uh, other research partner claimed that they were going to see gamma rays. Um, However, I noticed during her talk that the energies that they were expecting together with the time scale of the emission, um, like how long the light was coming out for, was very similar to that of fast radio bursts, which are really popular right now. So what is a fast radio burst? So a fast radio burst is a burst of radio waves, uh, and it typically lasts maybe five milliseconds. Uh And um, they're from cosmological distances, so like way outside our galaxy. And um, we can tell this by how much smearing there is in the radio signal. Um, So like the more smeared it is and the further out it's come from, the more um, it's interacted with... Uh, electrons along the way which affects the signal in a very distinctive way and so we can see how much the signal has been affected by this and then put uh, a limit on how far away the source is now what what does actually just smearing mean uh so it's like um imagine if you're looking at uh a star like Uh that's far away between you and the star there's there's a whole bunch of you know of stuff so it's like a like imagine like a cylinder of electrons yeah right and then that'll affect the way that light propagates um between you and the and the star yeah right and so you know what that effect does to your signal and so um by by looking at um how much of that effect is in your signal you can set a limit on how distant your source is if you assume that that kind of beam of electrons is the same the whole way out Okay. And kind of see what I mean? Yes. I mean, this is not, it's called the dispersion measure in jargon, but that won't mean anything to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just one way of, of measuring the distance um, using this particular technique. Okay, cool. And that's a pulsar timing array, or that is, no, so I'm this is all of the terms, I think. Yeah, yeah. So we haven't spoken about pulsar okay, timing okay. arrays yet, although that's the main focus of my research. Um, but this paper, the one that I wrote with Jana, that mm-hmm. I'm describing now, um, predicts that you'll see, or that it's possible to see, radio emission from black hole neutron star mergers. And this is important because in this kind of merger, the neutron star gets swallowed whole by the black hole. And so it won't get torn apart or spaghettified 
like all of those, you know, it's kind of the cartoon picture that everyone has in their head, right? How stuff gets uh-huh. drawn out and spaghettified before merger. Um, but that really depends on the mass of the black hole and the mass of the neutron star. And in this particular case, it's likely that the neutron star does not get spaghettified before it enters the point of no return or the event horizon of the black hole. Um, and so how do you know that the mergers happen then? How do you know, how can you find that kind of source? And so the answer is twofold. Firstly, you can look for this um, signal that I was describing. Um, it's kind of, so the, the technical term is a unipolar inductor, but Jana and I like to refer to this as a battery. So imagine that you have um, a light bulb and you uh, have a magnet and you swing the magnet around the light bulb. So by having a moving magnetic field, you can create an electric field, which then can light up the light bulb. Okay, so that's basically... So the way any electrical generator works, which is just to move a magnetic magnetic field field around around some wires... Yeah, exactly. ...is what's happening with a star moving around a black hole. Yeah, so this neutron star is the, the dead remnant of a fairly massive star. Uh And it's undergone gravitational collapse at the end of its life. But it wasn't massive enough to become a black hole. It was only massive enough to crush the protons uh, and electrons into neutrons. But it wasn't enough to crush the neutrons into neutrons to make, well, the neutrons into whatever a black hole is made up of. No one actually knows to to make that singularity at the middle of the black hole. So that's what a a neutron star is already, a star that's so big that the protons and electrons have become all neutrons. Yeah. Well, there, so there's, I mean, there's caveats to that, right? But that's the kind of cartoon uh, picture that is perfectly sufficient for this level of conversation. Yes. <laughs> almost too much. You're <laughs> almost overestimating our level. And on its own, if it weren't orbiting a black hole, what would it be emitting or how would we know it's there? Is it, is it emitting visible light? Is it, like, what's the... That's a great question. So uh, sometimes these uh, neutron stars are spinning and they have their magnetic field axis misaligned with their spin axis. Mm -hmm. And that makes it like a lighthouse. So as it rotates around, we only ever see flashes of light as we uh, cross the magnetic field beaming towards us. So it beams radio waves towards us. These are called pulsars because they pulsate. Uh Uh, They appear to pulsate. So if, if you were near one that wouldn't be emitting any visible light or it's just so far that we couldn't detect it or we don't know? Or... Well, right now we find pulsars which emit in lots of different wavelengths. Um, so we find some that emit in, the ga- in gamma rays and we can detect those with um, special gamma ray detectors like Fermi. It's one in, that's in space. Um, but mostly we're interested in, in radio pulsars. And that's my kind of segue from pulsar timing arrays, which use radio pulsars to this kind of system, which I conjecture can make uh, this this particular kind of, of signal, this fast radio burst. I forgot radio waves versus gamma rays, which uh, on the spectrum, where are they in relation so, to each other? So yeah, so radio waves um, are, are not as energetic, right? So they have longer wavelengths. So if you imagine uh, like far infrared, and then you can get to like radio waves and then you can get to visible light and then you get to x-rays and then gamma rays as you increase okay. in energy. Okay. So These this pulsars is a are emitting radio spectrum. frequency energy and you're looking at the, it's an array of, of what? Or what's, yeah. 
So we haven't really gotten around to okay, what sorry, pulsar sorry, timing sorry. rays are I'm yet. I'm jumping ahead. I, not because I understand. I don't. I still don't understand anything. So I'm just trying to get. Okay. Okay. Uh, so, the, so the black hole with the neutron star orbiting it. Yeah. You and Jana worked on a model yeah. for what that would look like as far as what kind of signal it sends that we yes. can detect. Exactly. Exactly. And there's two signals. Um, well, there may be more, but the two that we propose, firstly, is this uh, radio signal. Um, and that comes from this um, black hole battery type setup, right, where the neutron star is with the strong magnetic field is, is orbiting the black hole. And the closer it gets, the stronger the luminosity becomes of the radio signal. Uh-huh. Um, and this may be a fast radio burst. And then the second signal is a gravitational wave signal. Now, um, gravitational waves are ripples in the fabric of space-time. And if you imagine uh, the universe to be like this big rubber sheet, and if you put something massive on this rubber sheet, it creates a dent. And that dent, that curvature, is gravity. It's like a visual representation of it. So Mm -hmm. this is the big difference between Einstein's theory of gravity, which is this curvature paradigm, and Newtonian uh, theories of gravity, which is like, you have mass, I have mass, therefore there's a force of attraction between us, and that's the end of the story. Right? In the Einsteinian way of thinking about it, we each make these little gravity wells, uh-huh. and um, the person who has the bigger well, who's more massive, will attract the less massive thing because you fall into its well. Yeah. Right? So in our solar system, the sun is the most massive object, so it has the deepest well, and then all the planets are in stable orbits, uh, going up the well, right? Mm-hmm. If you can think about it that way. It's like pennies at the airport and those charity donation mechanisms, right, right. except they don't fall into the center. They stay right. in stable orbits. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because space-time is now this pliable, elastic substance, you can see that if two objects are merging, if they're you know coming towards each other really quickly and they're orbiting each other, this is, that this is going to make ripples. Mm-hmm. And these ripples are gravitational waves. And so it's the stretching and squashing of space-time due to uh, accelerating objects. Mm-hmm. And that's what LIGO is looking for. Yeah, so LIGO looks for gravitational waves. Um, and those are gravitational waves at a frequency of uh, a few tens to a few kilohertz. And so if you were able to actually hear gravitational waves, like you would hear them in the LIGO band. Like you could actually hear you know, a, a black hole merging with another black hole and it would make a sound that goes like, whoop. Which and is it, how we like our physics. <laughs> Slide missile physics. Yeah. <laughs> Did I get the level right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So yeah, if you could hear uh, a, a black hole, black hole merger in gravitational waves, it would, it would be that chirping sound. Whoop. Going up into... Not into nothing suddenly once they're together exactly yeah, yeah. and then and then they and then they they ring down so then which sounds quite quaint for what's presumably one of the most violent things <laughs> it is it is right um, the most violent thing in the universe well yeah these are some of the most extreme violent events ever black hole black hole mergers i mean it's intense yeah <laughs> so um so just as you were asking earlier about the electromagnetic spectrum so how light Uh, has many different wavelengths. Um, So gravitational waves have many different wavelengths. So it's a whole kind of equivalent spectrum, Mm -hmm. right? So we can think of things in terms of wavelengths or frequencies. Um, But with gravitational waves, it's usually easier to think of it in terms of frequencies because you don't see gravitational waves. A better analogy is that you hear gravitational waves, Mm -hmm. 
right? So uh, at the very low frequency end of the gravitational wave spectrum, you have gravitational waves which are in the nanohertz frequency regime, right? So 1 to 100 nanohertz are things like supermassive black holes when they start merging, Right. Right. So like these are completely different sources from LIGO. And these are the sources that we're sensitive to with pulsar timing arrays. Mm -hmm. So what happens here is that galaxies, which have supermassive black holes at their centers, merge. And therefore, their central supermassive black holes merge. So if you have a central supermassive black hole like the one in the Milky Way, our galaxy, that's going to be a few million solar masses. Oh, we have a black hole at the middle of the Milky Way? Oh, yes. I didn't know that. It's a beast. Is it's it about a... four million solar masses. Do we have a name for it? Sagittarius A star. Really? <laughs> yes. I've never heard. I didn't know this. I had no idea this was even a, a theory or an accepted thing or not a theory. I mean, yeah. this is accepted truth that the center of the Milky Way is the so, black hole. The, so this is an amazing uh, discovery, which only happened in the last few decades. And um, a local astrophysicist, Andrea Ghez, and her group at, at UCLA, I believe, have made this wonderful animation where you can see all the stars at the center of the galaxy orbiting nothing, right? And so from the orbits, uh, you can then infer uh, what the mass is at the mysterious kind of empty center. So this is one of the ways that you can find black holes, right? You, can, you can't actually look at them, but you can look at stuff around them that has light. And because we have well-defined laws for how things move in gravitational fields, you can then infer the mass of the black hole. Okay, cool. So you were yeah. saying that uh, when other um, multiple galaxies come to, what were you saying about the, what the nanohertz level? Uh, That's or, right, of gravitational waves. So each galaxy hosts a central supermassive black hole. Mm -hmm. And by supermassive, I mean a million to a billion times the mass of the sun. Okay. So these are really big guys. Now, when galaxies merge, their supermassive black holes merge. And this, again, it's the same kind of you know, phenomenon of having these accelerating masses. It could be you and me dancing the do-si-do, -do, or it could be supermassive black holes merging. Mm -hmm. You know, The theory of gravity is the same. We make gravitational waves. Now, a supermassive black hole is going to make a significantly larger <laughs> gravitational wave uh, than people who uh, you know, have, have our kind of mass, right? Mm -hmm. Doing a do-si-do. -si -do. The difference is that pulsar timing arrays can detect uh, 1 to 100 nanohertz gravitational waves. And this is when the black holes um, start being driven towards mergers by gravitational waves. Earlier on, they eject stars, they can interact with gas, but once they reach a certain point, once they're separated by a pretty small distance, then they start merging due to releasing energy through gravitational waves. Um, but they're not very close to merger. However, LIGO sources, you basically hear the very last part of the merger. You hear the final kind of death throes, this whoop, and then after the noise stops, like, that's it. It's game over. They've merged. They're now a new kind of compact object. Or, you know, if you have a one solar mass black hole merging with a one solar mass black hole, you get a two solar mass black hole, yeah. right? Like, things like that are pretty simple. Um, also... Likely, if you have two neutron stars merging, you get a black hole because then you have enough mass to really crush the neutrons down into this new exotic material that's at the center of a of a black hole. And would two neutron stars orbiting each other have big enough foot, uh, gravitational footprints to 
send gravity waves out also? Absolutely. They- yeah, definitely. Yeah. And they do. And those are in the LIGO uh, kind of audible, if you like, frequency band. Okay. So this, so pulsar timing rays would be like lower than infrasonic. It would be like really, so, really low frequency. So, so, so how often do galaxies collide? This is an excellent question. And we don't really have a very good handle on what the merger rate of these galaxies are. Because if we knew that, then we could really have a better handle on on what the level of a gravitational wave background would be. So earlier I was talking about a single system, right? Mm -hmm. Two supermassive black holes merging. But now we're surrounded by galaxies that are merging. And so actually we're bathed in this background of gravitational waves from the whole history of supermassive black holes which have ever merged, right? Ever. And this has uh, distinctive characteristics. So it's like ripples on the surface of a pond um, and we're just like on this little boat that's bobbing up and down. Uh-huh. And we have this kind of background of these waves that are coming from everywhere. Right. So instead of having one big wave that kind of takes our boat up and down, we have like all of these little waves around us. And while and we can predict the kind of general properties of these of this background. Uh, if we knew how often galaxies merged, um, then we could have a better handle on what the amplitude of that background is, but we mm-hmm. don't. So that's actually one thing that we infer from different limits on the amplitude of the background. So, you know, if, if galaxies didn't merge very often, then this background would be very low. Mm-hmm. And if they merged a lot more often, then it would be higher. And then if the supermassive black holes were all beasts, like, you know, a million, sorry, a billion uh, to 10 billion times the mass of the sun, then again, the amplitude would be much higher. And so as we continue taking data with our pulsar timing array experiment, we can rule out some of the more massive uh, objects or higher merger rates because we would have seen it by now if it had been that high. And so we kind of take these slices every year or two years and we say, okay, well, uh, we have a new limit and now our limit is much more stringent than the previous one and therefore we can rule out the following galaxy merger scenarios. So it's one way of saying, look, we haven't found anything, but that also tells us something, right? We haven't found any gravitational waves, but if this guy's model were correct, we would have. So he's wrong or she's wrong or they're both wrong, right? And we keep going that way uh, until we actually detect something. So just doubling back, what was was the specific thing then that you noticed during Jana's lecture that related to your work that connected to all of this? Sure. So I, um, so I came from this background of knowing about gravitational waves and about pulsars. Uh-huh. And Jenna was giving a talk about a neutron star orbiting a solar mass black hole-ish, maybe 10 solar masses, definitely not supermassive. Uh, and I noticed that the, the, the time span where the, um, where the luminosity was brightest was very similar to that of a fast radio burst which are these mysterious bursts of radio waves which come from lots of different parts of the sky and like no one knows what their source is. So right now, all of the theorists are kind of just throwing their hat into the ring being like, we think that it's a giant flare from a pulsar. We think that it's, you know, um, two neutron stars colliding. We think that it's two black holes colliding. So there's a lot of different ways that people um, have been able to predict what fast radio bursts are. 
Um, but nobody knows for sure yet. And one of the theories that you know we posit is that there's a lot of different things that make fast radio bursts. I mean, really, what they are are you know intense bursts of radio waves that are far away and that last a few milliseconds. So people can, uh, some of my colleagues have inferred that they come from like really small regions mm-hmm. and really and ha- and come from objects with really strong magnetic fields. And so neutron stars are the perfect, you know, uh, source of, of fast radio bursts. And there's a lot of, it turns out that there's a lot of ways to make them and people just get creative and can keep coming up with more and, and that's fine. So... So what you've suggested is a new put, a new possible way they get made. That's right. We suggested a new way to make them. And we also, um, it's also a distinct fast radio burst. So most of them just have one peak. So you just kind of have this burst and that's it. And ours would have two bursts, right? So ours would have a double peak. And that makes it distinctive. So you could, you could say, oh, this is probably from a black hole neutron star merger, whereas these other ones could be from different sources. So ours has a kind of telltale sign, and you know it's from a different kind of system. And so the first peak is from the initial merger uh, of the neutron star with the black hole, and the second peak is a little bit weird. It's actually from when um, the neutron star's magnetic field uh, migrates to the black hole, and then there's this violent magnetic field snapping that happens, which produces a second burst. Run us through that last one. <laughs> so when you have the neutron star, which is you know being absorbed then into the black hole, yeah. Um, the at the, at this very last phase, the the magnetic field uh, is kind of like if you imagine you know like um, little hairs coming out of the top of the black hole. Uh, sorry, of the neutron star, and that's the magnetic field. Like those still pop out a little bit. Yeah, from the black While it's hole being sucked in. Yeah, sort of. exactly. But it can't; they can't reconnect because now you've got the event horizon that separates them, and so they kind of so there's this kind of magnetic uh, field snapping that happens, and it's you know extremely violent, and then this releases a lot of energy. So that's the second pulse. That's the second. Pulse. And has this signal been detected? So there has been a double peak uh, recently identified a double peaked fast radio burst. Now, we're not the only people who have predicted a double peak. Um, there's another, another model um, of a neutron star-neutron star merger, which predicts a double peak. Um, and one of the calculations I'm actually carrying out this week is to see if this double peak that has been detected could come from our system. Wow. And these are detected by... This isn't Lego related at all because it's not uh, gravity waves. This is just radio waves, right? So if it's close enough, then it would have a gravitational wave signature, which you would see in LIGO. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just, again, it depends on how far out it is because the further the gravitational waves have to travel, the stronger the signal has to be in order for you to see it at the Earth. And so nearby systems will uh, are easier to detect. Mm-hmm. And so um, this double peak... Uh, came from cosmological distances. So I don't think that this would be in the LIGO band, like off the top of my head. I yeah. haven't done the calculation, but I'm 99.9% sure that um, it wouldn't be detectable okay. yet. Is it the case that we haven't even conclusively ever detected gravitational? So yes and no. Uh-huh. Um, the, we do have evidence that gravitational waves exist. 
So the one of the first um, binary pulsar systems ever dis- ever discovered is called the Hulse-Taylor pulsar, mm-hmm. and um, these astronomers monitored uh, the orbital separation of a pulsar around another neutron star, and they're close enough that they should be um, merging very slowly still by emitting gravitational waves. So they monitored the this orbital decay for 10 years. And what they found was that the orbit was shrinking in the exact way that was predicted uh, by Einstein for gravitational wave emission. And so, I mean, this this is a beautiful plot. It's one of the most... I think beautiful, you know, I predict this and these are my data points plot I've ever seen in my life. Like mm-hmm. the error bars are less than a percent. And you'd almost think that this line was made to fit the data points, but actually they're just plotted on top of each other. Right. So the fit is perfect. And this won the 1993 Nobel Prize for physics. OK. So we're sure gravitational waves exist. And this is why, you know, a lot of these big gravitational wave experiments like LIGO got the go-ahead for funding, mm-hmm. right? Because you have to be sure that what you're predicting is out there. The history of gravitational waves is, you know, rife with confusion and um, and mistakes in calculations. Even mm-hmm. Einstein at one point was convinced that the gravitational wave prediction of his theory of gravity was just a mistake due to a poor choice of coordinate system something like this, right? Like it was just a mathematical curiosity that it wasn't real. And, you know, so it took a long time to figure out all of the math, or maths, as you may say. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> what are you, uh, in, hang on, which one are you in Canada? We're math. Okay. Yeah. All right, I see but, how things are. But we spell things properly. I thought we were friends with color. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> add extra an, use and An everything. honorable mention. Yeah. Yeah. Neighbor. So, um... But back to the controversy. So it was it was really difficult to actually get this prediction right and to nail it down and to say, okay, you know, like we think the gravitational waves have these two polarizations. It can be in a plus stretching and squashing pattern or in a cross stretching and squashing pattern. So you can, you know, the effect of a gravitational wave traveling through you, if it's coming out of your chest, is to, you know, stretch you up and make you look like a supermodel and then come back and then stretch you out horizontally and make you look like a sumo wrestler, right? So that's what it would look like if it were coming right through your chest. And then the other way is like a cross pattern, so just rotate that and then imagine the same kind of effect, but now... Diagonally. Yeah, exactly, diagonally. Okay. So in LIGO, when you're talking about the really low-frequency... Like galaxies orbiting each other, what's detecting those, or is that also just theoretical and hasn't actually been detected by some device? So no, so yeah, back to gravitational wave detection. So we have the smoking gun signature. We know that they exist. However, no one's actually directly detected them, so we haven't seen a gravitational waveform emerge from something. Mm-hmm. And that's important because it can tell you things about the system that it came from. It can tell you how far away it is, what the mass of the black hole. And neutron star or neutron star and neutron star is. Uh, you can even test theories of gravity, which make different predictions about um, either gravitational wave polarization or if there's you know other things that are that are going on that we haven't taken into account with just pure general relativity. So there's a lot of rich information mm-hmm. in this gravitational signature that no one has detected yet. Um, and so, 
So LIGO is looking for it in the tens of hertz to the kilohertz range, and pulsar timing arrays look for it in the nanohertz range. Now, I haven't, you're right, explained how pulsar timing arrays work. I'm glad I didn't miss it. Okay, I'm just trying to, uh, and I no. guess I could be like a proxy for our audience, hopefully, and asking my dumb questions repeatedly, because maybe they... Are you calling our audience dumb? Is that what you're saying, Andy? <laughs> I think our audience is actually very smart. They're smarter than I am, yes. Uh, okay, so you were, you were saying... It's okay, I've been in school for a while. <laughs> and I haven't in 17 years, so... If you guys knew more about this than me, I'd be pretty upset. <laughs> uh, so, right, so pulsar timing arrays are, are really special because they are galactic-scale gravitational wave detectors. So what we do is that we monitor millisecond pulsars, which are these really stable old pulsars. Mm-hmm. Um, we know up to 100 nanoseconds, more or less, when their pulses should arrive at the Earth. They're almost like cosmic clocks. So up until a few years ago, they were more precise than atomic clocks on Earth. So they're really beautiful. They're nature's clocks, right? What frequency do they usually pulse in about? What range? The pulsars? Yeah. So um, usually around 850 megahertz to 1.4 gigahertz. Does that mean that a day on one of the, that that's how fast it's orbiting? And oh, it's, so the period is usually a few milliseconds. So that means it's, it's spinning around... Uh, hundreds of times a, a second around its own axis, right? Because it's, it's the, the pulsars have the magnetic pull. It's not the same as the... That's right. That's right. And so... So this is a whole star yeah. that's spinning so quickly that it's rotating hundreds of times a second. Yeah. So a millisecond is um, like once in a thousand seconds. Right. right. Like a, yeah. But and you're saying the period those... is... Wait, sorry. Or the... Uh, so, so it's not orbiting hundreds of times a second. It's I thought you said the period. So yeah, the, the period is around is a few milliseconds exactly. So it takes a few milliseconds for it to yeah to, to rotate go around once. So yeah. if you lived on the surface of that star, <laughs> one you, you one day you would. But you know if you <laughs> if you toughed it out, if you really just you know clung on and were brave about it, then one day would be about a a hundred a few hundredths of a second. Yeah, or so, even quicker. Yeah, a bit quicker, right? So a period is, is a millisecond. Oh, it's one really... millisecond. Is one yeah, period. exactly. Okay, so it'd be a thousand. So you'd have a thousand days a second. A thousand well, Earth days. I think, yeah, I think that we're now kind of getting into, you know, what the exact definition of a day <laughs> is. And then this is. I'm just trying to picture the actual thing, but it's spinning around very quickly. And really quickly. Out... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to work out how many breakfast options you need to yeah. make and right, well... how many outfit choices. Exactly. I mean, like they probably if you lived in that scenario, there'd probably be different kind of fashion rules. Like you couldn't wear something different every day because that would be a practical. It's difficult to change that. It's true. It's true. And if you were a hobbit and needed many breakfasts a day, this might be a serious problem. It'd be very expensive. Breakfast budget would be out of control. And also you probably exist in some matterless, formless medium, but... Well, they would also be like kind of squashed, right? Because right. of the really strong gravitational field. So it makes sense there'd be hobbits so, there. So, yeah. yeah. But yeah, that's maybe. <laughs> so just to be clear in your professional physicist, well, like according to you, professional physicist, hobbits live on neutral stars. On pulsars. On pulsars, right. I can't say that. <laughs> I was going to go along with it, but then I'd get made fun of at work. That's it's kind of, you know, like that never gets old. They'll be like, hey, Mingarelli. <laughs> you really think that hobbits Hobbit live pulsars. on pulsars? And Man- then I'd have, you know, 100 people mansplain how that couldn't happen oh. to me. So I'm really, I'm not even going to try to go there. 
Okay, so these things are spinning quickly, and they're like clocks. Exactly. So they spin really quickly. They're like clocks. We know exactly, more or less, when their signal should arrive, right? Now, gravitational waves change the distance between objects, right? It stretches and squashes the fabric of space-time. Right. And so, you know, you and I sitting here could be moved apart from each other and then back closer together, and that's not us that's moving. It's the fabric of space-time itself. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And so gravitational waves can then cause this jiggling between the Earth and the pulsar. And then... um, and then that's what we look for. So if it's jiggled, then the signal might arrive a little bit late or a little bit early, right? And then we look for this pattern in the time of arrivals at the Earth of these pulses from these really old, stable celestial clocks. Okay. And has that been detected? Nope. No one has directly detected gravitational waves yet. Which experiments are looking for that right now? So there's pulsar timing arrays and there's LIGO. Okay. So who's doing, like, where are, which are the labs that are doing the pulsar timing array experiments? So in North America, uh, we have a group called the, uh, called Nanograv, and we're the North American Nanoherbs Observatory <laughs> for Gravitational Waves. It's like a fractal of an acronym. Yeah, that's... A bit like, of a backronym. <laughs> but it's also this nano, or one of the N stands for nano. <laughs> it's Nanograv. Yeah. Um... And in Europe, we have the European Pulsar Timing Array. And in Australia, there's the Parks Pulsar Timing Array. And together, we're the International Pulsar Timing Array. So we all see pulsars in slightly different parts of the sky. The, the Australians, obviously, a significantly different part of the sky. Uh-huh. Um, and we come together and share our data. And one of our first papers ever as a collaboration is coming out soon. So that was just... Um, submitted to a journal and hopefully will be out soon. So that's really exciting. So pulsar timing arrays are really new in the sense of um, the nanograph collaboration is only around 10 years old, right? Whereas LIGO, for example, had its first uh, scientific run in the early 2000s. And so pulsar timing arrays are also very different, right? We can't go and jiggle a mirror at the end of our interferometer and we can't tune our lasers we can't do these kinds of upgrades what we can do is get better radio telescopes we can get better back ends on the ends of those radio telescopes so we have better software that are, that's processing all of the data we can improve our own search pipelines and we can make them parallel and put them on supercomputers um, but we can't, and, and we can find more pulsars to add to the array. Okay. Yeah. Cause we had, um, uh, the episode a while back with Jamie and Larry on the show talking about LIGO and how it worked. And so that LIGO looks for changes in the time it takes for a laser to travel a long distance, bounce off a mirror and travel back. Yeah. So again, it's that same thing where if there's been a gravity wave, that distance has either been increased or decreased. So yeah. it'll take a slightly different. Exactly. And so this is like having um, each pulsar would be like having like, uh, you know, a laser going one way, right? Right. Towards the earth. And you can't uh, find a signal though using just one pulsar. Because if you have just one pulsar, you can say that this is intrinsic noise in the pulsar, right? Or you could, you could basically explain it away using a lot of different scenarios. Mm-hmm. And so we need to have many pulsars. And when you cross-correlate all of the time of arrivals from all of these pulsars, 
then the only thing that should be connected or similar to all of these pulsars is a gravitational wave, right? Because the noise in the pulsars will all be different. Mm -hmm. But the signal, the more pulsars you have, the stronger uh, the signal gets, the stronger the gravitational wave signal gets. And that's why we want to have lots and lots and lots of pulsars in a pulsar timing array. And if that then happens and you do find a signal... Is it possible using the different pulsars to triangulate roughly where the thing that caused that signal came from? We can do sky localization, yeah, with with the pulsar timing array, and um, we can even try to look for uh, an electromagnetic counterpart, so a, a light source, an actual like source in the sky where we can say, "Aha, it's coming from over there," and point to it. Right. And try to look at it with telescopes. Um, we get a bit of an increase in our signal if, if we can do that. But but really, the first thing that'll tell us is is probably, you know, astronomers who find a supermassive black hole binary candidate. And then we then go and do a kind of back of the envelope calculation and say if it would be in that pulsar timing array frequency band. And then if it is, then we can dig into our data and try to find a signal from it. So couldn't you also use the pulsar timing array to do the higher frequency LIGO stuff? Or why is LIGO still necessary if, if this works well, the pulsar timing arrays? So we have different sources, right? And this is the, the key thing is that um, our the total frequency band of pulsar timing arrays is set by the length of observation of your pulsars. Mm-hmm. So if you monitor your pulsars for 10 years um, and then you want to figure out, you know, what kind of gravitational wave you can see in that, you can take one over 10 years, which gives you uh, essentially, you know, a nanohertz in frequency. That would, yeah, it would take that long to go through a cycle. Or wait, a nano is, one, is a millionth? Uh, a billionth. Billionth. Oh, okay. So, yeah, it would take that long for one cycle to yeah. have happened. So, that, yeah. that's how long it would have taken the two um, the w- galaxies the- to have orbited each other. So it's not. So here we're not looking at the galaxies, but we're looking at their central supermassive black holes. So it's actually really interesting that by the time the supermassive black holes are at the point where they're emitting gravitational waves, mm-hmm. the the galaxy around it will have likely already settled into a new kind of galaxy, and you might not even know that this kind of galaxy would host the Uh central binary because it doesn't look like it's been disrupted. It doesn't look like it's still merging. It takes that long for the supermassive black holes to sink to the center of this new galaxy that it's formed and for them to get to the point where they're emitting gravitational waves that, again, outside, everything might seem normal. If, If two galaxies are colliding, before the two black holes merge, wouldn't there be loads of crazy activity from thousands of stars colliding with each other and interacting with each other because every galaxy will have its own yeah so there's a lot of empty space in in galaxies so andromeda is you know on a collision course with the milky way and that'll they will eventually merge so our milky way will merge with our, our closest neighbor how long have we got i think we still have a few billion years so all right <laughs> I got time to organize my room a little. You can bit. make short to midterm plans. Yeah, yeah. I don't think there were in any immediate danger. Right. Um, but like, still buy fruit, but maybe don't buy canned goods. <laughs> yes, yeah, still, still worry about the drought. Still yeah. do everything yeah. you can. Take right. shorter showers. 
but <laughs> from local farmers. I don't know. Eat organic. So what? Yeah. So what will happen when Andromeda starts starts to merge with the Milky Way? So a lot of a lot of gas um, gets kind of thrown up, and if you have two spiral galaxies, which are the ones that have those kind of nice spiral arms mm-hmm. that merge, they usually make something called an elliptical galaxy. And this is more, you know, you, you lose that arm structure and it just becomes more of a blob. Okay. Right? And so it's not entirely clear uh, what would happen to the Earth. Um, and this isn't really my specialty. Uh-huh. <laughs> um but, you know, parroting things that my colleagues have said to me, uh, it's not entirely clear that much would happen to the Earth at all, right? Because there's so much empty space um, that we, we might be, that it's, it's not clear that our solar system would necessarily be disrupted. We might be in a different place in our new uh, merged galaxy, but we might still be here. That is, of course, if the sun hasn't already turned into a red giant, and, uh, you know, swallowed up a lot of the inner planets and, you know, burned off the atmosphere of the Earth. You know, quite a, a lot of things can happen in a few billion years. Right, right, right? right. So we're only going to be around, you know, the sun will only be around for another four and a half billion years, more or less. So it depends on how long it takes Andromeda to get here. I can't remember off the yeah. top of my head, but I do know we don't have to worry about it. We've got it. a while. We've got a while. <laughs> All right. Excellent. It's just... So, that's actually a bigger weight off my mind than I thought it would be. Yeah, I was pretty stressed. I, I could tell you were too. <laughs> so, um, but to get back to your question, why can't we use pulsar timing arrays for everything? It's because uh, the frequency band is in the nanohertz, right? And so these, um, you know, the, the lighter solar mass black holes instead of supermassive black holes, right? So st- stellar mass black holes that are only like one to a few times the mass of the sun, which on pulsar timing array terms, like they're babies, right? Because we look at supermassive black holes. You could have something with only about the mass of the sun that turned into a black hole? Well, it would have been much more massive before, but the process of becoming a black hole sometimes is so violent that it ejects a lot of material and only, you know, one solar massive material remains. Oh. So sometimes it can, uh, you know, form an accretion disk around it and there's some stuff there. Um, There's a lot of different things. Why would something ever go out if the whole thing is it's getting so massive that it's sucking everything in? So <clears throat> the the process of of the final supernova explosion at the end of a star's life um, is, is one thing. So if you have a star which is you know many times the mass of the sun, it can become a black hole, and sometimes it does swallow all of the material in with it, and it just kind of it's like a, a blip and it's gone. Uh-huh. Right. Um, but sometimes what happens is that you have, you know, two things that are merging and the process of merging can strip away a lot of gas and a lot of uh, material. And that can make that that can make it so that the final remnant is not uh, is not itself much more than a solar mass. But it is a black hole. And but it still gets that- sufficiently dense to become a black hole. <laughs> yes. So they can still be enough material for it to undergo gravitational collapse into a black hole. Um, but, I mean, it's, it, it can be a complicated process of accreting other stuff onto it, mm-hmm. right, and to uh, eventually undergo the gravitational collapse. So sometimes you can get something which is right on the border, and it has to, like, keep getting material onto it in order for it to undergo that final phase of, of collapse. 
Okay. You already said it earlier on the show, but how how massive is the black hole in the center of the Milky Way? About four million times the mass of the sun. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so the fact that you need to be getting this data for so long to look at these super low frequency gravitational waves, does that mean there's no hope that something big could happen in like, you're never going to like wake up one morning and look at data and be like, we found it last night. It's always got to be looking backwards over years of data or. But our, our signal builds up over yeah. the years. And so what we can do, uh, because we don't, we don't look at our data every day. Yeah. Right. So we, um, our, our, my colleagues, which are very dedicated radio astronomers, take lots and lots of data. And then they have to put together data sets. And this process takes a lot of time. They have to take into account a lot of things when assembling a data set. Mm-hmm. And so usually there's a few years between new data sets to analyze. Uh, we can also predict how the signal should be building up in the data. And so far, um, with the new Nanograv nine-year data paper, um, which just came out, uh, we are the signal is building up in exactly the way that we think that it should. And so we don't really have the smoking gun signal to noise yet. We can't exactly say, you know, we're sure to within, you know, however many sigma you like, um, that there's a signal there. We can say that, you know, before we had a signal to noise of like 0.1 and now we have, you know, 1.1. And then we predict that in five years we'll have 10, something like this, right? So we're showing the evolution of our detection statistic over time because this is the way that our experiment works. We get more and more sure as the years go on. But you're right in that it's a waiting game. Even if we find a brand new pulsar and it's awesome and it's got really low timing noise, it's like got super awesome times of arrivals, we still have to time it for five years before it's a useful pulsar for gravitational wave detection. So what's the implication of the thing that you and Janet discovered and wrote up? Um, what's cool about that system is that it emits gravitational waves uh, and radio waves. And so by looking at those two things together, you can discover a lot more. You can learn a lot more about the system. So if you're only looking at a source in gravitational waves, then sometimes some of the source's parameters are entangled. You can't really tell them apart. Uh A lot of things look the same. Mm -hmm. But then if you have a second piece of information then you can get that information in that signal too. And then you can really start tearing stuff apart and figuring out like what, what the masses of each individual component, what the, gravi- what the uh, magnetic field strength of the neutron star was. And this is also an open question in astrophysics right now is how do the uh, magnetic fields of neutron stars evolve over time? Right? This sounds like a simple question, but actually there's you know two pools of thought. One that um, you know, it eventually decays into nothing. And another one that says they don't really evolve, they're pretty static. So there's a lot of open questions that we can start answering if we find a signal like this. Okay. So are you continuing down this line now or are you going back to your previous work? with your? I'm doing both. I mean, I, I really enjoyed doing something completely different. Is like a palate cleanser, right? Yeah. It's and it's really fun to um, be able to kind of fulfill that image that you know even I, as a scientist, have of other scientists. How you can go listen to someone else's talk and then make a contribution and have a really good idea and write a paper together, right? Like you'd think that this is how science works, but a lot of the time people are stuck in their offices working on their own stuff because they have deadlines and you know 
life gets in the way. So yeah, sometimes yeah. it's nice to just really be able to do that. And that's that's really exciting. And that also means that those talks actually have value beyond just education and showing off. Absolutely. And it was a LIGO talk. So. Right. <laughs> so that was great. Um, and yeah, working with, with Jana and then the third author was my scientific mentor, Joe Lazio, who's in charge of the NASA Deep Space Network. That was also really fun. What is the NASA Deep Space Network? It's, um, it's this set of radio telescopes which communicate with satellites, uh, with NASA satellites, which are not in low Earth orbit. So everything else, you know, talks to NASA through the Deep Space Network. So when you walk into the Space Flights Operations Facility here at JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, you can see all of the different spacecraft reporting, and there's Voyager at the very top. So it's really awesome. And they've got these solid uh, works drawings, which are like these 3D image images of all the different satellites, like zooming around or being manipulated. Uh-huh. So it's like you totally nerd out, and it's awesome. I got to go there. Did I tell you that last week I went to no, JPL? No, I didn't know you went there. Yeah, I saw that room. That's amazing. I didn't realize that we, you know, are the, or that that is the center for even satellites that aren't <laughs> under their purview. They're still, like, tracking, right? Like, e- even data from, like, uh, New Horizons, which was a Johns Hopkins thing, is still coming through there, right? Is, that's where everything's being tracked, basically, on a the lot of Yeah, a lot of things are being tracked through there, and it's also where the Mars Science laboratory is i don't know if you saw yeah, curiosity yeah. while you were there yeah but. i saw the model they had outside that's the one that's just uh that's like a dumb just for like weight or i guess they were doing it for like um to measure the shadow that it has uh as far as like <sighs> you, it tell the, you the, the, i'm not deliberately not helping you out i genuinely don't know oh, okay. what you're there's talking a model about. Of, there's a model of it outside there's a model inside and then there's a model outside that's just like brushed steel and nothing to it it's just the same size and shape as it to do some kind of testing about um like signals coming through it and being able to detect i don't know yes i saw i saw mock-ups of curiosity it was really cool the whole thing was we haven't amazing. talked about this tool were you even doing that i uh rach <laughs> somebody else is doing a science podcast um and got this set up and then a friend of the show rachel porter was like i've got a plus one for a jpl tour i didn't tell you this no yeah like a week or two ago um hobnobbing with nasa yeah it was pretty sweet we got to see um yeah, I think everything that you're that the public is allowed to see. There were some cool like CubeSat projects. Um, Definitely, there were there was some. Uh, they're they're working on like the new ways they're going to try to like land things besides. So the last the Curiosity was landed with that sky crane, and I guess that's not going to work for even bigger things. They've got to figure out other ways to slow things down besides airbags and sky cranes and stuff. Yeah, it was really cool. And they also had that that visualization of all the data coming from various. Have you seen that thing that's like rain? Like the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really, really... It looks like the Matrix. Yeah, yeah. The Matrix numbers <laughs> dropping, sort of yeah. showing like what when data is coming up and down from various oh. satellites. Someone else we met at the party was responsible for that data analysis, and now I forget his name. I'm pretty sure that was Joe Lazio. Who oh, was I... that who was also yeah. at the party? Okay. Nice. Yeah, sat next, to, sat next to you, me, and Jana around the fire pit. Oh, Oh, that was Kip Thorne. No, no, no. Kip Thorne was in the kitchen. I saw oh, Kip Thorne. Oh, okay. And... He moved. Because he was up. Yeah, he was sitting with us at the fire. What's point? wrong with Kip Thorne? <laughs> no, nothing's wrong with okay. Kip Thorne. I just saw him and shook his hand and said hello. And just went, oh, that's Kip Thorne. Uh, and then <laughs> that's tr- what a lot of us And do. then tried to get myself into a conversation later, but he'd no, already no. gone off. 
Maybe it was Joe. I'm pretty sure it was Joe. Yeah, I think that must have been. It definitely wasn't Kip Thorne because he was in the kitchen and I was just sort of looking through at him in the kitchen being like, Father of gravity and black holes. We're not worthy. He's a... And and also the guy who was the advisor for... um, I don't know. Hang on, which of the movies was it? What movie was it that... Interstellar? Is it a Marvel? Oh, oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. You know how Interst- we've talked about this on the show, how Interstellar actually sort of commissioned and collaborated with real physics to actually make everything happen. And- to make the space library? Yeah, to make the space library, but to, to actually model the... Um, <laughs> Not that part. Not that part. <laughs> to sort of model the black holes and everything, yeah. and they actually used their big fancy Hollywood graphics computers in collaboration with... And it was Kip Thorne who was behind that. Okay. Yeah, it was actually his idea. He came up with the idea for Interstellar first. And then um, when they were they were shopping around for uh, a director and Steven Spielberg was first the person who was doing the movie. Uh, but then it got shelved and then it got picked up by the Nolan brothers who then, you know, rewrote the screenplay. Um, but the science behind it was, you know, Kip's great passion. And I really think that that that, that came through. There are so many really awesome physics problems that are in that yeah. movie like especially when they're when they're spiraling and they're trying to rejoin with um with the spaceship and then they have to spin as fast as the spaceship so that it stops spinning in the reference frame Do you oh, remember yeah, that yeah. part when like the i'm vaguely remember I, always, I saw the film once okay but uh that was so awesome yeah because <laughs> it's all about relative motion right yeah yeah you know. And then I know he put out a book then that was called something like The Science of Interstellar. I'm pretty sure it was called exactly that. Yeah. 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 So he um, is now an emeritus professor at Caltech. His office is on my floor. So he's the kind of unofficial, well, figurehead of our group. Right. Awesome. And he's also the one who constantly has gentleman bets with Stephen Hawking where the prize is Playboy magazines. <laughs> That's not a joke. It's framed outside of his office like, <laughs> on the wall. Yeah. Like what sort of bets? Well, unfortunately, Kip keeps losing bets about when will detect gravitational waves. He's very optimistic. Um, so I think he, you know, first bet that they were going to find gravitational waves in 2001 as soon as they turned on initial LIGO and that didn't happen. Um, and then there were subsequent bets. So whenever Kip bets about gravitational waves so far, he's lost. But for so, most of the other things, he's right. But that means Stephen Hawking is consistently betting against <laughs> gravitational waves. Why is he being such a dick? <laughs> Why can't he be? Other stories. <laughs> no comment. Okay, okay. Come on, Stephen Hawking. We need your support here. Maybe they're just hiding because they, we don't believe. Maybe it's like Tinkerbell. We have to all applaud loudly enough to make the gravitational no, look, waves come out. It's incredibly difficult to detect gravitational yeah. waves. You know, the gravitational wave detectors like the LIGOs uh, have so much noise in them. And, and the signal that you're looking for is so small. You know, the the strain, which is the, the fractional um, displacement over a displacement that you're looking for. You know, so, so imagine like, you know, you're looking for one millimeter per kilometer, right? Imagine mm-hmm. that kind of unit where it's like a distance over a distance. So LIGO is looking for a displacement which is less than the size of an atom. So that's hard. That's yeah. really hard. And the whole detector has been a huge engineering feat above and beyond, you know, looking for theoretical predictions. Mm-hmm. So they've had to come up with really powerful lasers, really incredible optics, ways to make the mirrors not shake at all. One of the sources of noises sometimes is a cloud going over, right? Because that changes the Newtonian potential, 
right? That, that you've got in your model. So that, that adds additional mass, that cloud has an additional mass and oh that changes the signal that you see. All of these things have to be taken into How consideration. How do you even take into account a cloud moving? Well, you, you, you eventually can do it. And you, you know, the ocean waves, which are, you know, lapping at the shore, like all of these things are noise sources. This, I mean, it's an amazing experiment. Oh, and that God. they can find anything at all is, is, is beautiful. Where is it again? Is it up near Stanford? Um, there's a few detectors. There's one in um, Louisiana. Oh. And then there's one in Washington uh, State, I think. So I'm not the LIGO expert again, but so there's one in, in Han Hanford. Is it like the Tri-Cities? Is that what it's called or the Three Cities area? The place where they did uh, part of the Manhattan Project? Somewhere up near Washington, somewhere up in Washington yeah, yeah. State. That's where Jamie was often be being flown out to. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, then definitely. Richland, so. Kennewick, Pasco. Yeah. Probably. I don't know. Yeah, that's probably where that was. Yeah. So, yeah. One is... Uh... Anyhow, sorry, I can't remember off the top of my head. This is very bad of me. No, no, no. I, I just for some reason thought it was yeah, how near dare, some... How dare you not know everything in all fields of <laughs> physics that aren't necessarily yours? I'm ashamed. Yeah. <laughs> and specific practicalities as well when you're a theorist. Yeah, exactly, right? So you can't ask me about anything practical. <laughs> Speaking of practical things, Interstellar, the one thing that did bug me in Interstellar <laughs> was when they were near that... Uh, Near the planet where they were like, we know if we go down here, um, time for us, you know, an hour for us is going to be a year for you. Yeah, the water world. Yeah, we'll try to make it quick. And the guy was like, yeah, cool, no problem. I could use some time to like do some. It's like, wait, what do you mean? Yeah, cool, no problem. You're not even like thinking about the prospect of not seeing a human for years. You're not going to have like a little bit of a ceremony and be like, okay, like stealing yourself. Like, yeah, go, go enjoy yourselves. Like, I'll make it two hours if you want. That's just an extra five years for me. Like, he was just so cavalier about the whole thing. Yeah, I think that that would be a serious problem. He would have maybe gone insane, yeah. and maybe the crap, the spaceship wouldn't have even been there when they returned, right? Because right? right. he might have just been sick of waiting. Yeah, I mean, he just sort of looked older and had a beard, if I remember rightly. He wasn't. Well, he, like, he, yeah. he put himself to sleep for a couple of years, okay. so he wouldn't be too lonely. But it's essentially but, like solitary confinement, yeah. right? Which has been shown to actually make, make people you, crazy. And he was just like, yeah, yeah, go explore. I could use some time up here. Some time. What? I'm you just going to have, no have this cruel and unusual gonna... punishment right. <laughs> for a second. <laughs> well, well read it. That, that wave, it's impossible for a wave that size to be in like three feet of water. It's just, that's not, water can't behave that way. What? No, well, I mean, I think that the point with that wave is that there was only three feet of water because the rest of the water was, was in the wave deep. that was coming towards you, like a tsunami, right? Oh, okay. So it was, oh, I, I thought sense. they were saying the whole planet was like three feet deep and somehow there's a wall of water. No, no, no. Happening. I think it's just, it, it's, you know, like a tide, except okay. a ridiculous tide because you're so close to Gargantua. Yeah. So if they right? kept walking, it would have gotten suddenly super deep. And, like, if, uh, yeah, I think if you took away you know, any kind of gravitational interaction and the tidal force is that, it, you know, it might have just been like a regular water world, but it's because all of the water is in this huge tidal bulge, right, which is just like a tsunami which keeps sweeping over the whole planet, right? That makes sense. That's oh, one okay, of the signs yes. of a tsunami, yeah. apparently, as well. If you're, on a, if you're ever on a beach and suddenly all the water disappears. Oh, right, yeah. Get the hell upstream. Yeah. Exactly, but they thought it was a mountain Up that a just hill. started to, like, get closer and closer and closer to them. Yeah. I take it back. Okay, Interstellar, you're fine. Except for the space library. Except for the, the solitary confinement. Solitary confinement, yeah. The and the fact library. that love is the greatest <laughs> force of all. We, we, yeah, you know. Hmm. <laughs> Are you guys building a love detector anywhere? <laughs> Detecting deep space love? There's actually what, a bar what near is, here that has one is of those. love? Exactly. <laughs> 
I think you just hold the handles and you put a quarter in and it tells you. Yeah, but you have to put the handles like light years apart. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think that they have those in Venice Beach, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just tap into their network and get some of that Venice Beach data. I don't want to brag or anything, but I'm hot stuff. <laughs> I'm a cold fish. So. <laughs> oh. Yeah, it's a bummer. Maybe they need to recalibrate the detectors, though. It could be. <laughs> I'm not sure the signal-noise ratio was high enough on the love detector. Well, these things can be difficult to detect. Yeah, yeah, very difficult. Well, where can our uh, listeners find out more about you and your work? So I have a website. It's chiaramingarelli.com. Uh, and you can also look for information on uh, pulsar timing arrays at uh, nanograv.org. And that has a lot of information for the public as well as for scientists about what we're doing. Uh, one thing that I'm really proud of is that we release all of our data sets. Mm-hmm. And so you can look for gravitational waves yourself. And we also have all of our codes that we use to look for gravitational waves on GitHub. And so if you're so inclined, you can download our codes and download our data and try to reproduce our results yourself. So that's one of the things that we're trying to really promote is this concept of open science. If you know, don't believe me, do it yourself. And so some, some really high impact journals have very poor reproducibility for their results, mm-hmm. right? And we're really trying to convince people that when we detect gravitational waves, that it's the real deal. And so we have a lot of tools to help you understand um, what gravitational waves are and then for you to just get your hands on the data and download our pipelines. And if you're so inclined, have a go. Cool. And That's you also awesome. tweet at? Uh, gravitate to me. Nice. There we go. <laughs> uh, we are at Probably Science and at probablyscience.com. We'll put links to all of that on the website as well. Mm-hmm. That's also where you can find the PayPal donate button. Uh, as we just explained, we recorded episodes back to back, so we don't have anyone to thank this week because no one's donated in the two hours since we last recorded. Right. But if you but, did, if you did donate in the last month, we'll thank you next week. So. Yeah, so thank you so so much for all the donors. Also, if you're shopping on Amazon, use our link. It costs you no extra. We get a small commission. We get a small kickback. Uh, why not set the link on probablyscience.com as your bookmark so you don't have to remember. You just start typing in Amazon and it'll auto complete. And spread the word. That's the other way you can really help us. Let people know about the show. Tweet, Facebook, tell your friends, write nice things about us on iTunes, subscribe if you're not already subscribing. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Yeah, that was My great. pleasure. That was awesome. And <laughs> we will see. <laughs> the silent clapping from Dan. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I should <laughs> <laughs> He's our studio audience. Yeah, look up Dan McLeod's music as well. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah, so what's Where should we send listeners to? Sure. Um, you can find me at danmaxmusic.com. Excellent. Yeah, excellent. It's good that. stuff. It's good stuff. Well, thank you both so much. And hey. we will see you next week. Bye.